This is Beyond Reading the Bible, where we connect you with the living Word. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Beyond Reading the Bible. I'm Lindsay Kennedy. I'm Randy McCracken. And we're glad to have you again with us for a new episode. In this podcast, we like to look at a number of different topics and themes that help us read our Bible better. And one thing that we constantly bring up is cultural backgrounds or historical backgrounds. Things that are often not familiar to modern readers and particularly not familiar to people who live in the West because we have the culture difference as well. So in the past, we looked at patron-client relationships in a previous podcast. In this podcast, we're going to be looking at honor and shame and how important this concept is for understanding the Old and the New Testament. Yeah, so right, Lindsay, let me begin with just uh, uh, an example of this in, in modern day life. And, and we'll just share a few examples back and forth to show that this is still a, a viable issue today as well as in biblical times. But maybe not so much in the West as it is in the East. So let's say you're a businessman and you're on a trip to China and your Chinese associate offers you a, a ride to your hotel. But you politely decline because you tell him it's so far away. And in your Western way of thinking, you're you're thinking, well, I don't want to trouble him. But actually what you've just done is insulted your Chinese associate and you've caused him to lose face. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? So so often we think that that's being polite, being kind. Don't want to put this person out. Yeah, when we were discussing this topic, it it brought to mind some news that I'd heard a few years ago. Back in 2014, the CEO of Nintendo, he actually took a 50% pay cut for five months because of dropping sales figures. So often in the West, we would have a CEO uh, say, well, this is really the, we're going to have to lay off some workers or we're going to have to change some things around here. But, but this CEO, he took full responsibility and he took personal responsibility by saying, Himself and actually, I think other executives, they all took pay cuts because they took it as their failure, their responsibility, their leadership. Those are some examples from from modern day Asia. But is this something that we find in the ancient world as well, Randy? Yeah, most definitely. And and it is interesting. We've we've drawn our examples probably from the Far East. When what we uh, want to do now is talk about the Middle East. But these these uh, principles that we're speaking of are just as true in the Middle East today, and they certainly were true in the ancient Near East. Lindsay, I'd like to refer our listeners to a very important book that has really helped me. And in fact, in our podcast on patronage and grace, uh, this is one of the books we put up uh, on the on our site. And it's a book uh, by a man named David De Silva, who's a scholar of New Testament background material. The book's called Honor, Patronage, Kinship, and Purity. And in this book, he makes a quote about the significance of honor that I think we need to hear. He says, the culture of the first century world was built on the foundational social values of honor and dishonor. Hmm. And so that right there tells us that when we're reading scripture, and we're particularly looking at the New Testament here, we want to be sensitive to this uh, cultural value of honor and shame because it was such an integral part of that society. 
Right. So we're talking about honor and shame and how it's different to to the West, but I mean those are common words or fairly common in our vocabulary. But did these words or did these words mean something different than perhaps how we use them today? Like how would we define them in, in the ancient world? Yeah, that that's a good question. And so for instance, let's look at the word honor. Um, Bruce Molina, another scholar who is real familiar with New Testament backgrounds, defines it this way. He says, honor is the value of a person in his or her own eyes, plus that person's value in the eyes of his or her social group. Mm. Honor is the claim to worth along with the social acknowledgement of worth. And that second part, Lindsay, mm. is really important. Mm. So that's, yeah, that's relational, isn't it? And then it's also, it's something that's imposed upon you by others. That's right. Your status of, of honor, it's not something that you can, uh, well, we're, we're living in a world today, aren't we, where you can assign yourself your own identity. Very different from that. Very different, yeah. So it speaks to the, the importance of the community or the group that you are a part of and that you associate with. And mm. we'll talk more about that in in just a second. Mm-hmm. Uh, but before we do, let's also look at the definition of shame. Um, basically, shame can have a couple of different meanings. First of all, a negative meaning, which is probably what we would think of. First of all, someone says mm-hmm. shame on you or I, I'm ashamed of what I did. Uh, it certainly carries with it this negative meaning. And in the ancient world, um, being shamed means being less valuable. And the way you get shamed is by behaving in ways that run contrary to group values. Mm. Now, there's another aspect to shame as well, and we might characterize this as a positive characteristic in the sense that everyone needs to have a sense of shame. Because if you have a sense of shame, you're going to want to do things that are honorable. To give you an example, let's say a woman who has a sense of shame in the ancient world is not going to commit adultery. Or a soldier who has a sense of shame is going to stand and fight the enemy rather than flee in battle. So having that sense of shame is actually a positive characteristic. What we don't want to happen is to experience shame. To, to really understand the significance of honor and shame, we have to also understand both how ancient people and how many people in a similar type of culture today, they view their com- community relationships. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the West, we're much more individual oriented, but in the ancient Near East, as well as in the East today, people are much more community related. And mm-hmm. so it's not just what I do or what I think, but it's what's important to the group. How do I contribute to the group? What does the group think about my actions and uh, my my part in the group? Right. I remember you talked about this in the past. I took your New Testament background class, actually. And I remember when you had said something along the lines of that today you want to be individualistic. You want to leave the home. You want to make your own way in the world. And that's seen as success. While in a in a different culture like this, you actually want to remain tightly knit with your community, with your family particularly. You want to not stand out and appear too individualistic. Would that be right? 
Yeah, and in fact, in, in some ways, we could almost describe it as, as a matter of life and death. If mm. you get cut off from the community in the ancient world, uh, you no longer have identity, you no longer have support, you no longer have uh, access to some of the vital things in life that you need, because if you are uh, a shameful part of a group, you're cut off from that group, and other people don't want to associate with you either, mm. because to associate with a shameful person brings shame on you. Therefore, you really become an island out in the middle of a, a raging sea, and it's uh, literally a matter of life and death in some cases. There are a lot of examples in Scripture that, that really demonstrate this, and, and there's even modern-day examples. I'm going to put an example up later uh, on this particular episode with a link, uh, an article that uh, our listeners can uh, later go and read. Uh, it's called what is face in Asian culture and why should mm. we care? Again, it's that, that's dealing with the Far East, but the principles are just as valid and just as real. But I'll uh, just reference that now for our listeners and, and they can go uh, click on that link later. But Lindsay, why don't you and I talk about, since this is about beyond reading the Bible, how this all uh, plays out in Scripture and its significance? Yeah, that's great. Let's do that. To begin with, uh, I, th I think uh, a starting point is just recognizing uh, the occurrence of the words honor and shame in Scripture. When I first became aware uh, of this topic through books like David De Silva's, I, in my Bible reading, I started noticing on almost every page, I'd either see the word honor or the word shame. And that was a new revelation to me. I had just read over those words before and hadn't attached any real significance mm. to the occurrence. Yeah, I, I bet that will be the same for many of our listeners. I know it was for me that you just run into these words and they're they're so you're so used to the vocabulary of the Bible if you're a regular Bible reader or you've been a Christian for a long time, especially. But even they've just seeped into our culture even that you think you know what these words mean. And that can be one of the biggest dangers counted to to misreading the Bible. Yeah, sure. Or just yeah. missing out. Yeah. So, Lindsay, it's not only a matter of um, recognizing the words honor and shame, which occur frequently in Scripture, but uh, there are a lot of other words that carry the same kinds of ideas, words that we might refer to as synonyms. For instance, the word glory. Think how often you see the word glory in Scripture. And then God makes a promise to Abraham saying, I'm going to make your name great. He does the same to David. Well, you know, these are ways of, of bringing honor to those people. Uh, the scriptures talk about magnifying the name of the Lord or praising the Lord or exalting him or God lifting someone up. These are all various ways of describing this cultural concept of honor. So what does this mean when we talk about the name of the Lord, right? When we talk the name of the Lord is a strong tower or the name of the Lord you could be relied on and that's interesting when we look at it through this lens of honor and shame, it, it makes a lot of sense, isn't it? Your name, it's not just the name Yahweh or the name the Lord or anything like that. It's actually his his character, his reputation, and he's the most honorable. That's right, and that even gives us uh, some background for understanding one of the Ten Commandments about not taking the name of the mm. Lord in vain. 
Yes. We don't want to bring dishonor or shame on the name of the Lord. Right. Yeah, it's so much bigger than, than name dropping sort of <laughs> and, and cursing. Right. It, yes. I'm sure it definitely includes that because it's dishonoring, but it's it's so much more. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah that's right. Well, uh, on the other side of the coin, we could talk about uh, some synonyms for shame. Words like despise, reproach, scorn, slander. Any of those negative kind of words that clearly um, would be detrimental to uh, a person's character or to a person's reputation. So, you know, when you read through the scripture and, and you bring all of these uh, words together, and I'm sure others that we haven't even mentioned, you begin to see that this whole concept of honor and shame, uh, it's on every page of both Old Testament and New Testament. These ideas of honor and shame, they don't even have to be communicated directly through through words and their synonyms, but you can even have them through through metaphors, can't you? Such as mm-hmm. even in Genesis one twenty eight, for example, male and female, they're created in God's image and given authority to have dominion over the creatures of the earth. And in this you have such a great honor being placed on humanity. Really, this is right. it's a task that's given them, but you can see that this isn't this is honorable task. In fact, Psalm 8 functions much as a commentary on Genesis 1 and 2. It talks about being given dominion over the works of your hands, putting all things under his feet, mankind's feet. And it says you have crowned him with glory and honor. So the psalmist recognizes what's going on in Genesis 1 and 2, that this is being given honor. Ephesians 2, 19 saying about the Gentiles who are no longer strangers and aliens, but citizens and members of God's family. So this is not just a thing of, of being distant and coming close, although that's true, but it's also through being low and being lifted up. Mm. Those are great examples of just showing how you don't have to have the actual words to communicate the idea of honor. Mm. You know, another way to do this, Lindsay, uh, and this gets back to our conversation that we began with when we used examples from the Far East and we talked about the word face and we're all familiar with this language of losing face or saving face and there's a lot of um, body type language if I can use that expression that is involved in communicating both honor and shame particularly when it refers to like either the head or the face. And we can see a lot of this in scripture. Um, just to give some examples, for instance, the anointing of the head. If you're anointing a king or a priest or whatever it might be, uh, that is an action of showing honor. So when the psalmist says, thou anointest my head with oil, it's a way basically of saying, you know, God has, has honored the psalmist. Uh, people yeah. being made the head of a group. For instance, sometimes the kingship or leadership is referred to as that person being the head, mm. same way it is today. Um, people bowing their head shows honor and respect. People being at the head of a line or at the head of a table, uh, these are all ways of ascribing honor. Jesus, for instance, in uh, the Gospel of Luke, he talks about the person who chooses the chief seats, and he warns against doing that. Choose a lower seat, he says, so that when the host sees you, he can bring honor to you rather than shame you. And he can say, oh, you know, you need to come up higher, 
rather than the person sitting in the chief seat. And he says, look, you need to go down lower. It's funny because in some ways then Jesus would be reversing the cultural expectation through doing this, wouldn't he? That's right. And that's one of the significances of the whole concept of honor and shame in the scripture. It reverses the social expectations and attitudes. It basically stands them on their heads. It turns them inside out because what's honorable to God is very different from what's honorable to the regular person. Though at the end says that you will be lifted up and given honor. So he's still working within the honor and shame framework, but he's tweaking it, isn't he? He's subverting it, but still talking about being honored in the end. Yeah, exactly. I wanted to share one passage of scripture, Lindsay, just kind of read it because it's such a great example using this language uh, that shows how physically a, a person can be honored. And this is found in the book of Esther, chapter six, verses six through 11. It begins, so Haman came in and the king asked him, what shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? So notice the question. Now Haman thought in his heart, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman answered the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let a royal robe be brought which the king has worn, and a horse on which the king has ridden, which has a royal crest placed on its head. Then let this robe and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor. Then parade him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robe and the horse, as you have suggested, and do so for Mordecai the Jew, who sits within the king's gate. Leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken. So Haman took the robe and the horse, arrayed Mordecai, and led him on horseback through the city square and proclaimed before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. So that passage is is great in, in just describing the the physical part of showing honor to someone, the royal robe and, uh, you know, putting them on a horse and basically uh, praising their name as they go through the streets. Yeah, it's interesting that it's so physical and visible, isn't it? You, those moments where someone receives honor or is, or is raised up to the status that, that they should be raised to. Yeah, and just as a, an opposite example of that, again, the head and fl- face plays mm. such a huge part. For instance, slapping someone mm. in the face or spitting in their face or hitting them on the head, and all of these things are said to be done when Jesus is being tried and taunted by the Romans. Um, so all of these things are ways of shaming an individual. Okay, so we, we've mentioned this idea of, of uh, different ways the scripture expresses honor and shame and ways of, of presenting someone as honorable or so on. But I remember right back at the start, we had talked about if you lose your honor, it, this is really a matter of life and death. So mm-hmm. it raises the question then, if you lose your honor, are you stuck? Or how do you get your honor back? Is there a way to do that? Yeah, again, we do need to address this whole idea of, well, how how does a person become an honorable individual? Or if they lose their honor, can they get it back? So get it back. So good question there, Lindsay. 
there's two ways in the ancient world of gaining honor. Uh, the first is known as ascribed honor. And basically, there's nothing you do to gain that honor. It's just a matter of being born into an honorable family, being part of an honorable group. So if you're born into an honorable family, that automatically gives you honor. And as long as you don't do anything to violate uh, the group's uh, uh, values, then you will continue to be seen as an honorable person within the group. That's where things like uh, genealogies become significant. We might wonder as Westerners, why are there so many genealogies in the Bible? Well, there's various reasons for the genealogies, but one of them is to show that an individual comes from an honored family. Matthew 1 is a great example of that, where we have uh, Matthew beginning his gospel with the genealogy of Jesus, showing that Jesus is a descendant of Abraham and David, and that he is a descendant of all of the various Davidic kings that Matthew mentions there in chapter 1. And therefore, Jesus' genealogy suggests that he is an honorable individual. In fact, he is of royal lineage. Right. I suppose that would also be a factor in why people would be referred to as son of so-and-so. Right. Jesus, right. son of Joseph, is one of the reasons why they're mentioning his, his father is because they're mentioning his the family he belongs to and all of those things are associated with it, including their status. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Well, besides um, acquired or ascribed honor, there <laughs> I've already mentioned what the second uh, way of uh, getting honor is, and that's through uh, acquiring it or achieving it. And that happens in the ancient world in various ways, through virtuous dealings with other people, being a good son, being a good daughter, building a good reputation, uh, striving for virtues that are recognized by all, virtues like piety, courage, reliability, these sorts of things. And they're going to uh, enhance the honor of the person. One of the ways in which a person acquired honor in the first century was through a social game uh, that brought honor or shame. Now, scholars have called this riposte, which is actually a French word. But what it is basically is a challenge to someone else to gain honor at their expense. For instance, if you think that what they're saying or the way they're acting is wrong, you would challenge them. And in the process of doing that, if you can prove that uh, they are, in fact, wrong, you basically steal some honor from them. So you bring shame to them and you uh, you get their honor. Right. That's much like a, a duel. Isn't it? Yes. Yeah. We we see loads of examples of that in the Gospels where people are constantly challenging Jesus, like the Pharisees or the Sadducees, coming up with questions to trap him. Uh, and Jesus then responding. If he doesn't respond, he loses honor. Uh, and for a teacher to lose honor, he's probably then going to lose his disciples and any influence that he has. Uh, therefore, uh, Jesus uh, always effectively responds to uh, this challenge of honor and actually ends up bringing more honor to himself, bringing shame on his opponents. 
And this helps us understand uh, the building up of the hostility between Jesus and some of the religious leaders. Right. So if you're working to, to gain honor, are you allowed to draw attention to the fact that you have honor, you know, basically boasting? Are you allowed to do that? That sounds like a funny question, doesn't it? Because mm. boasting in our society is uh, just such a negative thing. Mm. We really look down on anyone who brags or boasts. But actually, in the ancient world, boasting was perfectly acceptable as long as you could demonstrate that you had right. actually done what you were boasting about. And boasting was, in fact, one of the ways of achieving honor. So um, a statement here by uh, another Bible scholar named Philip Essler that uh, I think this is a good quote, and I'd like to share it with our listeners. He says, in North American and Northern European societies, boasting always has a negative connotation. But in the honor cultures of the ancient Mediterranean, the practice covered by these words meant the acceptable practice of publicly making claims in relation to one's honor. And he goes on to say one of the ways in which we, we see that in action is the various uh, inscriptions that can be found in, in any city or town. For instance, if a man uh, out of his own money builds a synagogue for the Jews, he has the right to have a, an inscription or a plaque put up and to boast about the fact that he's the one that built this. And so this is the way you acquire honor in the ancient world. You you do good deeds and then you boast about them and let others know about them. Right. Yeah, it's very interesting. But you also do see that very frequently in the Bible, don't you? You see Paul, even himself, uh, he refers to this practice he sometimes says, where, where is the boasting? And he says, well, there is none. And there are other times where he seems to ref, uh, resort to boasting when it serves a rhetorical purpose. Yeah, that's right. And again, that's why it's important that we talk about this, because uh, most of us in Western society would never equate boasting with honor. In fact, we would see it as dishonorable. Mm. Uh, but this was a very common practice. And all those occasions in which Paul and uh, others mention the practice of boasting, uh, it begins to make sense now because it was a part of the first century culture. Uh, and as you said, Lindsay, sometimes that, that boasting is bad. For instance, when Paul talks about in Romans, you know, those who, who keep the law, where is the boasting? And uh, Paul says we have no right to boast, basically, because mm -hmm. no one... No one can keep the law perfectly. But on the other hand, there are positive reasons for boasting. For instance, we can boast in what Jesus mm -hmm. has accomplished for us. Or we can even boast in the good that others have done. Mm -hmm. And so Paul will use this word boasting in many different ways. And as you've said, sometimes it's a negative quality and sometimes it's a positive quality. Now, that's important, though, to notice, isn't it, that Paul or whoever who says you can boast in the Lord, that's really not bringing honor to yourself there, though, is it? No, that's right. And there's the difference between, you know, that conflict, again, between society's way of doing things and God's way of doing things. Mm. 
so we see that God engages in this way of of interacting with people, this cultural norm, but he also subverts it, doesn't he? Yeah, turns it on its head, as we said mm-hmm. earlier. I uh, suppose the, the biggest example of this would be the cross. Yeah, as we all are probably aware, the, the cross was an instrument of shame in the ancient world. It was the worst kind of death a person could die, not only because it was the most painful, uh, but because they were crucified naked and they were exposed publicly to open shame. And so you not only are dealing with death and with pain, but you're dealing with shame. It would seem then by the religious leaders uh, getting Jesus crucified, it was a way of saying he's not what he claimed to be. There's no way he could be the son of God uh, because he has, you know, uh, experienced this shameful death. Mm. So the fact that you're facing such a fate, suffering such a death, shows, in fact, that God is recognizing your shame because he's allowing you to face this. That's right. And that's what makes um, the proclamation of the, the gospel that Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins so extraordinary. Because in the culture of that time, Anyone crucified would be the lowest of the low, the most shameful person in society and considered the most shameful person in God's eyes. And so the biblical uh, writers, the, the, the apostles, they had to communicate how God used this shameful death to actually bring glory and honor both to his name and to the name of Jesus. So, Lindsay, um, when the uh, apostles began proclaiming Jesus risen from the dead. Um, Paul talks about how the message was uh, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Greeks. Again, because anyone who's crucified is surely a shameful individual. But what the apostles were able to show was that Jesus' death was not shameful, It was actually self-sacrificial, that he himself had done no wrong, but that he sacrificed himself out of love for everyone else. So that he, being uh, the perfect Lamb of God, could shed his blood to forgive the sins of everyone else who was imperfect. And in the ancient world, anyone who sacrifices their own life for the good of others uh, is not a shameful person but an honorable person. Mm. And through this message, uh, they began to be able to transform this idea that Jesus' death on the cross was shameful. Now, of course, that would have had no real power behind it if Jesus hadn't been raised from the dead. Mm. And it's the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead that shows that God actually honored Jesus. Mm-hmm. And the whole conversation then about him ascending to heaven and sitting at the right hand of the Father. Again, this is all honor language and showing that through the shameful death on the cross, what Jesus actually did was um, bring forgiveness for others. And then God honored that sacrifice by raising Jesus up and seating him at his right hand. Jesus was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So even just drawing out the fact that it was death on a cross shows that he went to the lowest point possible 
But then verse 9 says, Therefore God has highly exalted and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So in response to what Christ did, by going to the lowest point, God actually raises him to the highest point, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow. So everyone is going to honor and respect Christ on the last day, whether willingly or unwillingly. And it's all in response to what, what he has done. So that the irony is that he did the most shameful thing, you know, dying the most shameful way. And in response, God has raised him up to the highest place. You've got both extremes there. It's a complete uh, reversal of, of what you may think. And once again, it shows the subversive message that's being proclaimed, uh, what the culture in that day and time thought was honorable and shameful. Really, um, the, the apostles are proclaiming it's actually just the opposite. To, to serve others is uh, not a shameful thing. It's an honorable thing. To not boast about yourself, uh, but to, to boast in maybe what someone else has done for you uh, is a much more honorable thing than uh, proclaiming uh, your own worth. Uh, and we could go on and on with, with those kinds of examples, but it, we begin to see how God took the, the culture and this understanding of honor and shame, and he used it to communicate the gospel through it and to show how twisted and wrong um, human beings' concepts of honor and shame were and to demonstrate what the truth of it really is. Mm. It's, it's funny to think about uh, how this reversal has impacted the lives of the disciples because you, you have someone like Peter who denied Christ, and sometimes we read that and we think, why would he do that? He's so foolish to deny Christ. But recognizing the honor and shame culture, I think it just makes it even more understandable because, you know, I've got friends who, who have criminal records right before they were saved, and, but I don't ever think about associating with them and what, what problem it would cause for me. But recognizing this honor and shame culture, I think it just makes it even more relatable why Peter would do this. But then, ironically, like we're saying, after the resurrection, you see such a change in the lives of the disciples. They they don't fear death. They don't fear being associated with Jesus. Uh, in fact, in, in Acts chapter 5, after they're persecuted by the Jewish council, it says, then they left the presence of the council. Now, I mean, the council, if you're talking about honor and, sh- and, honor and shame, they would be the top dogs, right? And it's saying yeah. they were persecuted by the council, but it says they rejoice that they are counted worthy so that's honor, to suffer dishonor, so that's shame, for the name, the name mm-hmm. of Jesus. So it's, it's so ironic, isn't it? They, they were counted worthy, so they received honor from God by being dishonored by man. To me, Lindsay, this is one of the greatest proofs that, that Christianity is true and that the scriptures are inspired. Because when people really understand the context in which the gospel story was birthed and enacted out, this culture of honor and shame, there's no one in that culture who would sit around and say, you know what, um, I'm going to make up a new religion. And uh, to begin with, I'm, I'm going to say that uh, I worship this guy who was crucified. Mm. Uh, no one in that world who wanted to make up a religion, if, if they did want to, would ever start with a premise like that. Because mm-hmm. that's the most shameful thing in the world. You wouldn't want to be associated with it in, in your own human thinking. You wouldn't see any way how such a religion could possibly be successful. Yeah. 
Uh, and so it's the last thing that would be on your mind. And as you said, when we see the transformation of the apostles after the resurrection, who boldly associate with the crucifixion of Jesus, who gladly rejoice to suffer shame for his name, how does that transformation happen? It has to happen because Jesus really was raised from the dead. And one of the things that really strikes me, Lindsay, about crucifixion in the ancient world, uh, the Romans used crucifixion as a very effective tool to put down rebellions, to put down anarchists, anyone that they thought was a threat to the state. And you know what? Crucifixion was 100% successful in that when a rebellion took place or when someone stood up uh, and was clearly uh, acting in their own interests and not that of Rome, if they were crucified, that put an end to the movement, that put an end to the rebellion immediately. Now, I said it was 100% successful. Actually, there's one case <laughs> in which crucifixion did not silence uh, the what the Romans might have interpreted as a rebellion or as a uh, Messiah. And that is, of course, in the case of Jesus of Nazareth. Hmm. Yeah, that's powerful. So it is powerful. And again, it's this context of honor and shame that helps us to realize just how subversive the gospel message was and that no human being in that day and time in that culture would have ever come up uh, with a plan to teach such a message unless they had experienced it and knew it to be true. Yeah, something miraculous must have happened. So, Lindsay, um, just drawing everything to a conclusion here, uh, I hope our listeners are able to see the value of understanding the significance of honor and shame. It it has a variety of ways that it can impact us as readers of the Bible. Uh, everything from uh, just recognizing the language and having a deeper understanding of what it means to magnify the name or to make someone's name great, to things like understanding what's going on in the interactions between Jesus and those who are opposed to him this riposte thing that we talked about. We begin to recognize that and understand why it takes place uh, in the culture of his time. Uh, and then, of course, most significantly, as, as we were ending with here, uh, this whole idea of how the, the cross is actually subversive and uh, how no one in that culture would have possibly come up with that idea in and of themselves. And it really just witnesses and testifies, I believe, to the truth of Christianity. As we're, we began with modern examples of honor and shame and culture, I actually wanted to, to mention the statistic, which is that 65% of the world works on this honor and shame system mm. currently. And that's actually 90% of the unreached people groups. So 90% of the unreached people groups still work on an honor and shame system. I got that statistic from honorshame.com, mm -hmm. which will be on our website. Yes. But this is really important, I think, because as we want to proclaim the message of Christ, it's important to realize that, that reclaiming the biblical honor and shame system or rec reclaiming the, the world that they were in and being aware of it really aids our, our missionary work 
because we're the ones that are actually far from that culture, um, the culture of the Bible. But many of many people in the world today, even the majority, are still living in a similar cultural system to to which the Bible was given. Yeah, that's right. And it really shows how when we are in tune with this concept of honor and shame, it can re- really help us in proclaiming the gospel to this unreached group. Uh, and it's something that they can totally relate to. So these things in the, in the scripture would, would make a lot of sense to them since it's already part of their culture. Uh, Lindsay, just by way of concluding, we're going to have a, a link or two on our, on our episode page, uh, because I think this is a very valuable, uh, website. And one of the links that I have on there is uh, a YouTube episode. It's entitled Honor and Shame 201. And I watched that a few weeks ago, and it's a very, very good video. It takes about, uh, I think it's 49, 50 minutes long, something like that. So, you know, you want to do it on your lunch hour or whatever it might be. But a very good uh, video and summarizing all of the things we've talked about, plus adding uh, additional information. And uh, one of the things that the guy on the YouTube says, his name is Jason Georges, is that honor and shame are not just a few random verses, but the key to understanding God's plan of salvation. That's a significant thing. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, we'll always put links on our individual podcast episode pages, so be sure to check that out. Also, if you enjoy listening to Beyond Reading the Bible, please go on to iTunes and the iTunes store and look for our show and uh, give us a review. If you have any feedback, whether it's topics you'd like us to discuss or, or suggestions, you can go to beyondreadingthebible.com, which is our website, and send us an email through that. So, Lindsay, it's, uh, it's been good uh, talking over these concepts of honor and shame with you today. And uh, we want to thank our listeners for uh, uh, tuning in and listening to this episode. And we look forward to seeing you again next time on Beyond Reading the Bible. Thank you.